We're holding in the story where the Tzamaq Tzedek realized that a lot of the ministers, from, from talking to them, he chapped that they all believed that the Jews, it was, that it was beneath them to do work on the land. Most Goyim thought Jews were all rich. So, and, and they wanted to basically split the Jews into two groups. The desirable Jews who actually bring something to the country in their eyes. And then the worthless Jews who in their eyes do nothing and waste everyone's time. Um, now, and, and, and they would just be kicked out of the country. Um, and or even better, even, or better, even worse, they would be used by the government as manpower for the army or any of the other needs. Now, meaning that if they needed supplies to be brought by wagon, they would just get these 400 Jews. Your job is to bring these supplies there. If you don't do it, you're all dead. Right? This way the government doesn't have to worry about paying them or you know, getting someone else to do it. Now in truth, the government looked at all peasants in this way, like the regular typical guy on the street who doesn't have any power. They looked at everyone like that, but the, the Yidin, they would be much worse for them. Um, so, going weiter, um, this would also apply, by the way, to any Jew who was found to have broken the law, even if this uh, terrible offense when I say broken the law, we mean like in a, exactly like that. Um, so even if this, this terrible, terrible offense that they did, um, if he was like, let's say he was caught outside of the area where he was allowed to be without proper papers. So in such a case, force him in the army. Right? Could you imagine what would happen? Any Jew who's caught doing anything illegal? Army. So no matter what they did, the Yidden were always, always blame the Yidden. We blame them that they're poor. Why are they poor? Because you don't let them work. Why don't we let them work? Because we don't like them. Right? So it's always blaming the Yidin for everything. If they were successful, especially if they're rich, you say, oh, they're stealing from the Goyim. They're stealing from the non-Jews. If they're poor, you say, they're wasting society's time. Right? This is how they looked at it. So, during the conference, the ministers made it clear that they favored the outlook of the masculine and the ambitions of the masculine. They said that the masculine were productive and they were working to make changes in the Jewish lifestyle so that Jews from all every area of life could be productive and eventually assimilate as well. Now, according to the ministers, the Tzemach Tzedek and all the Rabbanim, they wanted the Jews to remain peddlers without any real jobs. They said they, they want to keep the Jews behind in the times, right, to guarantee that they're going to just continue listening to religion. This is, of course, what the ministers were saying. And the government declared that all these poor shtetl Jews, they were worthless parasites. You know what a parasite is? No. It's a, like a little tiny bug that goes into it, but you can't even see it. Sometimes you can if they're huge, but a lot of times if someone's sick, it's because they have... Let's say like, like, a, like a cold, right? It's, it's that idea. It's like a tiny little disease, like a little tiny bug that you can't even see, right? And it's... it's a, people could have parasites. Like, like uh, I'm sure you've, if you have younger kids, they, they, sometimes they, they, in the gun they warn about worms and stuff like that, right? And when they go to the bathroom, right? These are called parasites. They're tiny little things. So they, the Jews are worthless parasites. A parasite is a word you use for someone that they're, they're just sick, disgusting, no good, nothing good could ever come out of them. 
Like that's, that's someone, when you call someone a parasite, a mosquito is a parasite. All it does is suck blood. It doesn't do anything good for you. Now, so this, they, they, and, and the Rebbe understood this, and the Rebbe felt this. So even when the Rebbe returned to Lubavitch after the conference in Elul, his concern was very noticeable. So to, in order to change the minds of the, the ministers, he decided to devote his energy to changing their perception, the way they looked at Yidin. And he stopped almost all Yechidusin, like, like no more Yechidus, to focus on this area. Shortly after Tishrei, word went out that the Rebbe forbade anyone from coming to Lubavitch. And until then, the Rebbe said a mime publicly every Shabbos. During the next six months, the Rebbe only said six Maimarim in six months' time. And even then, they were only said to a select few people. The Tzemach Sedek was completely focused on helping the, the Yidin, not just in Lubavitch or, or Hasidim, everyone. And he wouldn't allow anything to interfere with this goal. So a few weeks after Pesach of that year, the Hasidim were informed that they could once again come to Lubavitch and their happiness was so evident by the spontaneous decision of over 400 Hasidim to immediately travel to Lubavitch to be with the Rebbe. And to their joy, the Rebbe said a mimer that he, the Rebbe stressed that the oppressors, <laughs> the oppressors of Hashem were going to be overthrown. And the Hasidim understood the Rebbe's words as a hint that the, that the situation would be improving in the near future. And they immediately decided um, that they would no longer need to live in fear and the festivities of Lag Boimer could be celebrated in the same joyous way that it was in previous years. Um, and, and Take, they were celebrated and even the Rebbe participated. Now at that time, so already holding in 1844, the Tzemach Tzedek purchased an extremely huge piece of land, about 7,900 acres in the area of Minsk from a, a, a guy by the name of Prince uh, Shedrinov. I wonder, the town of Shedrin, right? It's a very famous town. Right? He was Prince Shedrinov. And he then arranged for 300 super poor Jewish families to settle there and to all become farmers. And that settlement was called Shedrin. Um, right, for, named after the prince. A few years ago, uh, I think it was like, oh, that, oh, sorry, I'm thinking of Shedlin, it's a different town. Okay, anyways, Shedrin is a very, was a very famous town for many, many years to come. Now, in order to supply these needy families, they need wood to, to, to build houses and barns. So the Rebbe sold about half of this land, half the land that, that the Rebbe purchased, the 7,900 acres. So he sold it to a Jewish lumber merchant with the stipulation that he gives free lumber to all the Jews in that area who need to build houses. Uh, now, since many of the families also literally did not have a penny to their name, so the Tzemach Tzedek used most of the remaining money that he received from the sale to buy equipment 
for that, that they needed for farming. Now this made a tremendous impression on the local officials because they always assumed that Jews refused to work because it was beneath their dignity. But now they saw clearly that they, that they were wrong. And they, they said the rabbi of Lubavitch showed that when they were permitted by the government, the Jews would do work if they, if they had it, meaning manual work with their hands. It also proved that the Rabbanim did encourage Yidin to be productive and get full-time jobs. And it was only because there were so many government uh, uh, restrictions that they weren't able to have full-time jobs. So while this settlement provided a livelihood for only 300 families, not so many, right, when you're talking about millions of people, but the government saw a very clear message that was being sent to hundreds of thousands of Yidin throughout Russia. That it's better to have a stable income. Stable income means if you're, if you're a peddler going town to town selling stuff on the back of your wagon, that's not called a steady income because what if you don't sell anything today? That means you starve today, right? That's not a way to live. But if you're a farmer, you have a much bigger chance of it being, of, of making a, a parnasa. Even if you might not become rich, but you'll have enough to survive. So he said it's better to have a job like that than be a peddler. And the, the, the area of Minsk also benefited from the establishment of, of this. Imagine having 300 farmers move right next to you because there was a food shortage in the, region, in, in, the, in the area, in the region. And now because 300 farmers moved in, all of a sudden there's, there's, there's more food for everyone. So the guy were also happy. Now shortly after establishing this settlement, the Yidden of Russia received a... Uh, like, like a, a cooling down from some of the government's gazetas. Um, now, we said 20 years earlier, we already mentioned this before, in 1823, the government banned Yidin from living in many areas. And there were many landlords, the, the, the Puritan, the, the Pirates guys, who we know from so many stories were so mean and bad for the Yidin, but they wanted the, the Yidin to come back. Because... <clears throat> um, and, and the landlords even went to the government and said, listen, I'm telling you, I know this Jew, he's my Moshka, right? The, all the Yidin were called Moshka, Moshkas, right? Because Moshka is the, 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 the one who received the Tehran. Sinai, so, oh, this is my Moshka, this is my Moshka, right? All the pirates bragged about their Moshka, right? The one who ran their lands and stuff like that. So they would go to the Tsar, they would petition the Tsar, and they would say, listen, I know this Yid, he's trustworthy. But their requests were denied. We're talking about 20 years before this happened. And they were kicked out from their homes. But then suddenly, 20 years later, in the spring of 1844, many of those landlords received an official letter saying that, like this, with regard to your request to permit your Jewish tenants to remain, after they were kicked out 20 years earlier, the minister's decision is that he will not be kicked out. Now, that's a very unusual wording. What that means is that although the government is not giving you permission, if you happen to do it, if you happen to bring Jews onto your property, we're not going to stop you. Right? So that, no, no. It was the government's way of saying, like, we don't agree, but whatever. Do whatever you want. Like that. Um, and as a result, a large number of Yidin, who were former tenants in these areas, they, they went back and... We're talking about thousands of Yidin now. We, we had a job for themselves. Now... This was a, a, a benefit from both directions because it was a benefit that now they had a job, but even more than that, now there were less people living in these shtetls. What does a guy do? What does a shtetl do when you have a shtetl of 400 people and there's 17 shoemakers? 
no kidding, no one's going to make a living. There's too many, you know. So, so now that so many people were leaving, it made things easier on the shtetl and, and the, the people living in crowded areas. Um, now people soon learned that many of these changes happened because of the Tzemach Sedek's efforts with the Minister of Interior, who ultimately, at the end, he gave permits allowing Yidin to move back into their uh, previous areas that they lived. Now, this, this uh, led to a huge increase in respect for the Tzemach Sedek throughout all the Yidin in, in Russia, not just Hasidim. But at the same time, it also increased his community responsibilities. Because many of these communities began turning to him for guidance and, and, and help in how to deal with authorities. Now, just to end off, that while Shedrin was established with the needs of the entire Jewish community in mind, the Tzemach didn't forget about the Ruchnius needs of these, the Ruchnius needs of these families. And he immediately sent the Hasidic Shirov and the Mashpia to settle there also for these 300 families. And as the years passed, Shedrin developed into a Hasidic settlement. Um, and it was made even uh, further stronger when the Tzemach Sadek opened up a yeshiva there. And it remained a very strong Lubavitch community for almost a hundred years until World War II when the Nazis came. <laughs>